State Representative Jim Murphy is one of many Missouri House members getting prepped for the 2020 legislative session. And the St. Louis County Republican is hoping to focus in the coming months on making sure Missouri's children know more about media literacy from an early age. Murphy joins us next on the latest edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today in St. Louis is my co-host. Julie O'Donohue. And our special guest, a first-time guest to the Politically Speaking podcast. Representative Jim Murphy. A a Republican who represents the 94th House District of Missouri. 94th House District, South St. Louis County. Now, one thing we always ask our first-time guests is to explain the boundaries of your district and you're no exception, even though you're very special. Very but. good. We, uh, <laughs> we, we start on the west, in the east uh, at the uh, Mississippi River. We, we go to the west to Green Park. Uh, on the south, we go to Jaeger Road. And to the north, we go to Rivas Barracks, which is part of uh, – uh, it, it goes right up to the 92nd, which is Bob Burns' uh, district. And it is one of the most insanely competitive legislative districts in the state. Well, I don't like to call it insane, but yeah, it's very, very competitive. I was not a pejorative, just it's very, very competitive, (laughs) as we'll get into in a bit. Um, So tell us a little bit about yourself, what you were doing before you jumped into the world of Missouri politics and why you decided to run for the House in the first place. Well, I I own my own business, uh, Shoppers Rule Incorporated, which is an embroidery supply business. Uh, I grew up in the sewing industry. We started out with the Singer Sewing Machine Company back in the days when it was the uh, second most recognizable brand in the world. Uh, from there, I went into the corporate world. And, and uh, in, in 1999, I decided the Internet might be something that had a future. <laughs> so, so I went off and started an Internet business back when it was dial-up. And it turned out to be uh, a pretty good move. That is ahead of the curve. Yeah, it, trust me, back then it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I should note that your son, Jamie Murphy, has been involved kind of behind the scenes in Missouri politics for a while. He was a staffer for Jim Lemke, is now the chief of staff for Paul Whelan. And I guess, is he still a member of the Melville School Board? Or is uh, No, the- he's no longer on the on the school board. It was, it was just too much to, to handle. He's now had his fourth child and, uh, you know, politics, uh, running a Senate uh, office, just just couldn't do it anymore. So. Well, well, the reason I mention is Jamie is a great guy, and I just wanted to give him a shout-out on Politically Speaking. <laughs> very he's good. been very helpful throughout the years. Why don't you talk to us about how you got interested in politics and how you decided to run for office? Well, it, it's kind of interesting. I was uh, always involved on, on the grassroots level. I you know helped with different uh, uh, campaigns, starting back with uh, Jim Talent when I first moved to St. Louis. Uh, did a lot with Jim Lemke and and other candidates, and 
ran the uh, Republican Club locally, got to know Gloria Brown quite well, and, you know, she was our uh, state rep. And uh, Gloria became ill, and uh, she called me and said that she wasn't uh, able to run anymore because of her health and said, I, sh- I should be the one that considered going for uh, f- to replace her. And I, at the time, I thought, well, I don't know if I want to do this. So I thought I'd run it by my wife, who I was fairly sure would say no. But she instead said, you ought to do this because it would really be a good thing because you're good at this. So I, I decided to throw my ha- uh, hat in the ring, and here I am. Is it hard being in, in a competitive district? There are a lot of districts in the state where people aren't going to get challenged. Their seat is fairly safe unless they're challenged from the right So like a, or, or from someone else in their party. I guess I would say I enjoyed the competitiveness of it because now the way I won election was to go to the doors and to talk to people. And as long as you're talking to people and listening to what they say and reacting to that, and I open my, my office to anybody. I, you know, if somebody wants to come to talk to me about a, a subject that I'm totally against, I will talk to them about it because I'm interested in what they have to say. Uh, as far as the infighting, generally incumbents are going to do well in fighting. So that, that's probably not a big deal. The Senate is, is the battleground of the state. You know, you have the conservative caucus. You have the non-conservative caucus, and they're fighting each other all the time. In the House, it's, it, you know, there's 113 Republicans, so we are going to always have fra- factions, but, you know, we deal with that. Let's talk about 2020. By the time this podcast is uploaded to the World Wide Web, it'll be about a week and a half, two weeks before you all come back for 2020. What are you expecting are going to be the big issues and the big controversies? <sighs> I don't know that there's going to be a lot of controversy this year. We kind of hit most of those last year with the heartbeat bill. Um, there's there's going to be some some push from the uh, the left to to push some gun, gun controls or red flag laws or things like that, which you know will probably get pushed back from from the right. There's going to be uh, some issues on clean Missouri. I I know our caucus wants to to revisit uh, the way that we structure our uh, our districts uh we don't think that it's non as nonpartisan as clean missouri said it was so we'd like to put that back to the voters let them decide one more time give them another choice and give them a little more uh information uh we'd like to do away with all the uh, lobby gifts right now it's at five dollars which is meaningless but, but I, I get a uh, MEC report and I see that somebody gave me a cookie and I'm going, I don't remember that. Yeah, I wanted to, I know I know every time we talk about clean Missouri, we talk about the state legislative redistricting, but I kind of want to take it in another direction, talk yeah. about the lobbyist gifts parts. One of the things that I asked from an early juncture was whether banning lobbyist gifts, and when I say lobbyist gifts, I mean, you know, you go out to dinner, a lobbyist like takes up the tab, so right. to speak. Whether that's super meaningful, if you can just put it on your campaign credit card and you're you're paying for it with campaign donations, because Clean Missouri does nothing about that, isn't is is that? Do you see that as like a huge loophole you can drive a truck through? Basically, um, I I personally don't do that because I've run a tight race and I need every dime I have in my campaign account. But some of your colleagues are doing that. So, on, oh, some both, of them are in doing both it. parties to be to be absolutely. Candid. I see the bigger problem is is 
the intent of, of the lobby gifts is to make sure that nothing's coming to us and, and it lowered the amount of how much the campaign contributions would be. And all that did was drive all of the contributions underground because now instead of giving to, to candidates, they're giving to PACs. And the PACs are, you know, running ads and so forth. Uh, I think it's better if the public can see that you gave me money rather than you gave it to a PAC who then ran an ad in my behalf. That was happening, though, before Clean Missouri with the 2016 version of Amendment 2. And we can go down all sorts of ballot initiative rabbit holes. But I think it's pretty clear Clean Missouri didn't really change much of that dynamic. But to to your point, like what Jason was talking about, uh, where maybe someone who's in a safe district who doesn't need all of their campaign funds necessarily for a challenger you know if if you're going out to dinner with a lobbyist and the lobbyist gives money to your campaign and then you pay for dinner with the money out of your campaign i mean there's a little less transparency whereas if i'm looking at a report and i see a lobbyist pays for dinner for a lawmaker i kind of have more of an idea of like the direct transaction i I think it's more transparent if you let it show up on the report be honest with you uh, I don't – during session, I will tell you that it's rare that a lobbyist would come to me and say, let's go out to dinner. I'll give you money on your um, campaign. I mean, that that really just doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I don't think the lobbyists would be super happy if you were spending their money on food. Like, they probably want you to spend that on campaign. Oh, absolutely. You mentioned guns, too, and we talked about this on a previous show. There has been a demand, mainly from Democrats and Democratic municipal officials, to put more restrictions on firearms. But we saw a letter from House Majority Leader Rob Biscobo recently saying that's not going to happen, and the Republicans in the House in particular are not going to pass a lot of gun control measures. What did you think of that statement? I'm sure that you saw it. Oh, I agreed with Rob completely. Um the the thing i i always get at is when you say let's let's put gun controls let, let's let's take away everybody's guns which is never going to happen we know that's not going to happen let's restrict legalized uh gun owners le- legal gun owners from from having guns i always get to the point where what do you really want do we really want to take away people's guns or do we want to stop guns from shooting people and, and we talk about the wrong issue. We, we talk about how do you, you know, pre- prevent people from buying ammunition or buying guns at gun shows and all this, when the real issue isn't that at all. The real issue is there's guns on the street being used illegally and they're hurting people. And why aren't we talking about that? Why aren't we having serious conversations about law and order and getting to these people that are getting these guns and finding out how they're getting them, stopping the flow of gun, illegal guns from the South, and all of these things? We don't even talk about that. What we talk about is should we restrict legal gun ownership for, for, for citizens? It makes no sense. I feel like there's a couple different conversations around guns and 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 how people use them to harm people. There's the conversation about, um, frankly, Kansas City, St. Louis, some other urban areas Mm -hmm. where guns are being used um, in crimes and killing people. There's conversations about suicide and people using guns to kill themselves. And then, frankly, there's the third conversation, which I would think a lot of people in suburban districts kind of have in the front of their mind, which is um, mass shootings and school shootings. And 
I'm curious about what, you know, I think the rise of the conversation about red flag laws is frankly related to that. Like, how do we keep guns out of the hands of people who are having a mental episode where they may go and shoot a bunch of people? Not, you know, uh, we just had the anniversary of Newtown. How do we keep a gun out of the hands of someone like like that shooter who clearly was having some sort of mental crisis. Yeah, and, so, and, and again, that wasn't a case where he went out legally and bought a gun. It was a case right. where he got, he obtained it legally Fair. and did it. I, I would like to talk about that when I talk about my uh, media literacy bill. Yes. Okay. Fair. Because I, I believe that we – can we segue into that if you like? Well, <laughs> actually, yeah. We can – I was going to take a quick break and then we were going to talk about okay, that. Okay. Let's, let's do that <laughs> okay. because I, I think there is a – an absolute tie-in here that we need to talk about. We are going to talk about Representative Murphy's media literacy bill right after this message from our sponsor. And we're back with Representative Jim Murphy. Okay, you wanted to talk about legislation that you filed on media literacy. It's probably the issue you wanted to talk about most on this program, and I'm going to give you the chance to explain what this legislation is and what it's trying to accomplish. Okay. Media literacy is all-encompassing, but it starts at an early age. What we have is children today that receive more information, media. They receive it from magazines. They receive it from films. They receive it from social media, Twitter, Facebook, so forth. They, uh, They get it from video games. It's coming at them at a, at a breakneck pace. Most kids today, by the time they're 10, will receive more information than, than I received by the time I was 60. And our problem is we're not teaching kids, or anybody else for that matter, how to process. And if we don't teach people how to process information, they, they do the wrong things. We talk about bullying. And media is part of that because today, bullying takes place not face-to-face as it used to. Now it's done through the Internet and through, uh, through social media. And kids react badly to it. We've got to teach our kids. You know, we're not going to stop bullying. You know, we've put a big emphasis on how do we stop bullying in school. How's that worked out? Not very well because it's going to happen. But what we can do is teach our kids how to comp, you know, process the information so that they don't jump off of bridges. They don't pick up guns and shoot schools. But it's a process that has to start at such an early age. And that's something we haven't faced up to. We haven't faced up to the fact that we're not preparing our kids for this. And they're reacting badly to it. And, and, they're, and they're, you know, they get bullied and what do they do? They, you know, they go off the deep end and either hurt themselves, hurt other people. We can't have that, and there are ways of doing that. I talk to experts at all, all the time, say if our kids were better prepared, we wouldn't have as much of this problem. We're not going to solve every problem. There's always going to be a problem, but we certainly can do better than we do now. So is the media literacy campaign, as it relates to stuff like, like um, I guess we can call it antisocial behavior or, or <laughs> threatening behavior, um, I, I always thought of media literacy as like, how do you determine what's a reliable source of news, right? It is. But is it also about like how you take in stuff that might hurt it's, your feelings? It's how you take in stuff that hurts your feelings. It's how, okay. to, how, how about advertising? Advertising affects everything we do. You know, advertisers 
fashion their message to come at you to do one thing, make you do something, you know, buy their product. Well, that's no different than everything else we deal in life. You know, they, today they can tell you what color font will make you, you react differently. And our kids don't know that. If, if you did a, uh, a class on smoking and said, this is how the, uh, the tobacco companies come after you. This is how they advertise to get you to smoke. They try to make it cool, and, they, and you give them examples of how they do that. At the end of the class, they go, well, you know, I won't fall for that next time because you've, you've enlightened them as to the method. But we have to teach them where is the information coming from, what's the purpose of it, what are they trying to make me do, is it legitimate, is it real? Oftentimes today what we do with, with any type of uh, information we receive is we jump at the first thing we hear as if it's fact. And we know for a fact that today with, with the news media as it is, they get a story and they run with the first thing they have. Now, it, we call it fake news. It's not really fake news. It's incomplete because as time goes on, you'll see that it, it develops and the information changes. But people don't change because they got an emotional reaction to the first thing they heard, and they hold on to that belief even though it's not real. So I'm reading the summary to this legislation, and it would establish a joint committee on media literacy uh, comprised of a number of legislators. And it, it appears that they would come up with, I guess, a plan to teach media literacy at schools, basically. Right. I just want to make sure I'm getting the bill Exactly. And, and it isn't a class in itself. It's just taking every, you know, whether it's a technology class, whether it's a history class, whether it's an English class, and incorporating it in all of the classes because all of them touch on it in some way. But in most cases, if you go through the curriculums today, they're, they're very antiquated. Mm. You know, and the, and the message is very antiquated. Now, this is a podcast, and you can't see what I'm doing right now, but I'm holding up my smartphone. Mm -hmm. And I would say with 100% certainty that I've been addicted to a lot of things in my life, including like diet soda and gambling. <laughs> I've never been addicted to things more than what I'm holding up right now. This Absolutely. Phone. My question is, is your, do you want the committee to look into the effect of consuming information from smart devices and smartphones and about how they're affecting not only children but adults and how they, they deal mm -hmm. with everyday life? Absolutely. We, we have to look at everything about how they receive this information. And I don't want to you, – you're not going to outrun the information they receive. You're not going to outlaw it. No. You know, we, we, when you hear these uh, uh, legislators in, in Washington, D.C. saying, oh, we got to fix Facebook, we got to do this, we got to – it's not going to happen. Like Josh Hawley, for example. Josh Hawley, for example. Yeah. But if we teach our, our children who will then become the next – round of adults, how to handle this stuff and not fall for, for all the, the garbage that comes across it, I think will be a better place. And you're working with a, I want to say a Webster University professor Yeah, Julie on Smith. This? Uh, she's, she's, she's marvelous. She wrote a book on it called uh, uh, Media Literacy and, uh, you know, Surviving Today's Plugged-In World. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, we've, we've been working with uh, – the, there is actually a whole group of, of uh, uh, professionals out there that have been dealing with this for years. And we're, it's starting to catch on. My bill is only one of two in the country right now. There's one in South Carolina also. Uh, 
you know, I honestly believe that it, it is the key to the future. If we don't teach our kids how to deal with this, it's just going to get worse. Moving on to another bill that you sponsored, not only in this upcoming session, but in last session, it has to do with um, prosecutors and deciding not to charge certain things and being able to forward it to the attorney general's office. I want you to explain what the bill does and what was the impetus behind it. Well, the impetus behind it was started out with Wesley Bell when he said he wasn't going to prosecute any deadbeat dads. Uh, you know, we've we've worked hard. Those are people that aren't paying child support. Are not support. paying child support. He said he was not going to prosecute them, that he would leave it up to the civil courts. Now, the difference between that is this, the prosecuting office, uh, b- before he got there, had, had was doing a, getting about, about a million dollars a year for for mothers. Civil court was getting seven or eight thousand dollars. It was ridiculously different. So by him saying, I'm not going to do this, you know, uh, it, it was just bad. But then he went, went on and said, I'm not going to uh, prosecute any marijuana uh, convictions. Uh, I'm going to not uh, arrest anybody for D and E felonies. Okay. What? Someone tell me, what, what is D and E? Well, they would, examples are second-degree rape, child molestation, sexual contact with a student, all of those things he said he wasn't going to prosecute. I, I, we haven't talked to the prosecutor, but I have a hard time believing he's not going to prosecute people for accusations of child molestation. Well, it was, he wasn't going to prosecute him. He was going to put him into, into programs. Okay. That was his. I mean, I, 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 again, I haven't talked to him, but I just sat through his budget uh, hearing a couple weeks yeah. ago and he had many people now, stand up and talk about let, let me, prosecution let me clarify. rape that's, cases. That was what he originally said. Okay. Okay. And that's what got me interested. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I met with Wesley Bell. I had him come out and do a town hall meeting with me. I, I personally like him a lot. But I feel that prosecutors can't nullify our laws. They can't decide which laws they want to do. If he wants to change a law, he needs to run for my seat. We pass the laws, police enforce the law, he prosecutes the law. If he's going to nullify a law, that's wrong. If he wants to take it case by case and say this one doesn't have enough evidence, that's one thing. But when he says, I'm just going to take this whole law and throw it out the books, that's not their process. That's not what they should do. So um, I have a few questions about this. The first one is whether the attorney general has expressed any interest in taking on, for example, like child support, you know, back payment cases. Uh, like like logistically, how I understand this would work is if uh, Prosecutor Bell or, you know, anyone else decides not to pursue those cases, they would then go to Eric Schmidt's office. And is he interested in taking this on? I will tell you, he is not interested in taking on a myriad of, of cases. What this does, though, is puts a double check on the prosecutor. Right now, we have no double check on any prosecutor in the state. Okay. So this is a case where the police can go to him. He can decide then whether or not he wants to pursue it or not. They have a working relationship together. I, I will tell you that if a bunch of cases come to the attorney general, he's going to be having a conversation with the, with the prosecuting attorney, and hopefully they would negotiate that out. This isn't really designed to, to have everything go to the attorney general. It's really just to give a double check 
where there is none. I, I understand we can get into um, Wesley Bell's sort of stated goals and stuff, but th- I, my understanding is from from being a journalist, you know, prosecutors decide not to, to focus their energies on certain types of cases all the time. For example, with the gray machines, the so-called gray machines, the Prosecutors Association has said a bunch of prosecutors across the state may think these machines are illegal. They're just not going to spend the resources resources to investigate and and charge people with, you know, having a gray machine in their business or, you know, operating one. So I guess that's really not up to them anyway. That's up to the local sheriff. (laughs) (laughs) Fair fair enough. But but the state police are saying that they're referring cases and people are just declining to sort of take them on. Right. So, I mean, I guess where do you draw the line between and I do understand that in in the case of of the of Wesley Bell, he's he's made it pretty clear how he feels about child support, certainly. Where do you draw the line between like maybe a prosecutor is deciding we're not going to pursue this type of case because I only have this amount of resources and I need it for some serious crimes. And I've just decided this isn't like a priority versus, um, you know, maybe they're in, in, in your opinion, neglecting, you know, certain types of cases. Couple of examples. Uh, right now in, in St. Louis, the prosecuting attorney has a, a gentleman who uh, confessed to a crime, and she she isn't pursued it at all. She's not sure of her case. Uh, she's getting a lot of grief about it. You know, wouldn't it be good if if the attorney general could look at it and back her up? You know, people say, uh, you know, are you doing this for Wesley Bell? You know, this has never happened before. You know, nobody was protesting about uh, uh, the, the prosecuting attorneys before Wesley Bell. And I, I, and I said, that's false. So I remember when Ferguson happened, there was people out on, on 44 closing it down because uh, McCullough wouldn't uh, prosecute uh, somebody. And there was nowhere they could turn. They couldn't refer it to, the, to what was then a Democratic uh, attorney general. Wouldn't it have been nice if they could have said to to the attorney general, take a look at this? If he'd have backed McCullough up, maybe we wouldn't have burnt down things. Well, I want to ask about that because my first impression of this is I understand why you're pursuing this legislation. But on the other hand, couldn't you make an argument that it was the will of the St. Louis County voters that they wanted a prosecutor like this? He was very clear. I want about him it. to be our prosecutor. I, yeah. I don't want to. Uh, this is if if I was looking to get him out, I'd I'd be having a bill to how to remove a prosecutor. Right. That's not the point. Okay. That's not the point at all. The point is is that we I don't want them nullifying our laws. Mm-hmm. And at this point, there's nothing to stop them from doing that. Have you talked with Attorney General Schmidt about this bill? And if so, what has been his feedback? His feedback was that he he needs to get along with the prosecutors, so he doesn't want to uh, either support or or, or uh, but but he's interested in it. Yeah. Do you think that it'll have traction in the House and Senate, or do you think because he's not because Schmidt is not it's not high on his priority list, it well, may not be pushed to the forefront? He would never be there anyway. He, there's. He would have to remain neutral in this in any case. Yeah. He, he would never come out and support a law or, or go against the law. Who is the person referring it to the attorney general? Law enforcement. Okay. okay. So it would, it would be if law enforcement, essentially if they're disagreeing with the prosecutor's decision, exactly. would have the option to go to the right. attorney general. Okay. Well, we are, have a few more minutes left, and we want to 
we want to continue on this uh, path that we've done with other first-time guests. And I know this is going to be the most controversial question I ask all day. But if you can point to one or two things in your district that you would like to highlight to our listeners, whether it be a school, a landmark, a business, it could be your business hypothetically, but you might want to choose a different one. I want to give you an opportunity to give our listeners a sense of what they can find there. I think what we have in our district is a, a great school system that's that's really moving into the future. We have a, uh, a school called uh, Mosaic, which is a innovative school of the future that uh, Chris Gaines has uh, put together. And it's a, a special school that uh, people apply for, and we, we have a lottery every year. And it's just designed to try new and, and innovative teaching techniques to, to bring our education system into the future. And as we find them that work, he's incorporating them into to, to other schools within the district. And uh, I think it's just one of the greatest things we, we've ever done. That sounds amazing. It is amazing. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a great answer to that question. And thank you so much for coming on our show. We're looking forward to having you back in the, in the near future. Well, thank you. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Julie on Twitter at... J.S.O. Donahue. Are you on Twitter or Facebook? I am on Twitter and Facebook. Do you know what your handles are? At J.M. Murphy. Oh, there you go. Eight, I believe. Oh, <laughs> the, the number is important. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. And you know we come to direct the discotheque. Now you go on the jack. Throw your hands up in the air. Don't ever disrespect. Now you go on the jack. Bust the rhymes up in the place. True indeed. Yes, I got the record. That's word on my feet. I'm guaranteed to give you what you need. One blow, different.